Hello and welcome to the Rare Disease Cell and Gene Therapy Weekly Roundup. I'm your host, Apana Krishnan. Every week, we at Partners for Access bring to you the most important news developments in the orphan drug cell and gene therapy world and what they mean to you. This week, we look at the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations, or EFPIA's Patient Weight Survey, and its key findings, as well as news developments in the spinal muscular atrophy world, relating to gene therapy, Novartis's Zolgensma, and Biogen's Spinraza. But first, P4A's Sophie Schmitz is here to talk about the key findings from the EFPIA survey and what the figures actually represent or not represent in the orphan drug world. I really wanted to talk a little bit today about the FPIA survey that recently came out earlier this month and it's a, a survey that's been done for three years actually now in a row it's the patient weight indicator survey this is of particular importance because there have been so many concerns expressed by stakeholders across member states about delays to access and specifically about delays to access for orphan drugs. So FPA have um, started up this survey and, and for those of you who are not familiar with FPA, it's the European Federation of Pharmaceutical Industry and Associations. So what did this survey actually show? Well, first of all, let me explain a little bit about the scope because there are um, 121 products that were included in this and around a third of those were orphan drugs. And the way that they actually constructed this, that they looked at all of the uh, drugs that were approved by the European Medicines Agency from 2015 with a reimbursement cutoff date of December 2018. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the findings because I personally, um, when, I, when I read the report, I, I found a couple of the findings quite surprising, actually. But let me explain a few of the definitions before, um, because that's important to understand as well. So available is one word that I'm going to be talking about. And available in this context means that the drug is on the market. Um, so the patients can receive it under a reimbursement scheme. It does not mean that there are any sales. So it could be available that there are certainly no sales. Um, and it certainly does not mean that patients are paying out of pocket. So available is really being reimbursed. The second um, definition, just to, to clarify, is accessible. And similarly, that means that a, a doctor or a medical professional can prescribe the drug and therefore it also is reimbursed. Now, reimbursement in this case doesn't necessarily mean full scale reimbursement. It could be conditional, um, it could be a case by case, but it is a, a formalised um, reimbursement. Okay, so they're the definitions. Let, let's have a look at the data then um, and see what the findings were. So starting with the rate of availability and what that actually is showing is the number of medicines that were available in that country post um, European Medicines Agency regulatory approval. So the top five, um, there's a couple in there that wouldn't surprise people. Um, the Germany, UK, Denmark, Austria and Italy. Um, they were the top five and France and the Netherlands came a close sixth and seventh place. 
the other thing I just want to talk about before we get into some of the detail is if we have a look at the countries where the rate of availability has decreased, then we'll see that you know there, there are some of the usual perhaps perhaps suspects that we would expect um, if we're looking at Eastern Europe, uh, looking at Northern Europe, so Croatia, Czech Republic, Iceland, Ireland, Slovenia, Norway, Finland, Sweden, and Spain is in there as well. If we have a look at the data where the rate of availability increased, then we'll see that Greece and France actually increased the number of orphan drugs uh, available by 10%, which is great. Only two products increasing uh, and many, many, many markets decreasing. If we have a look at the the countries where the availability has decreased, then I am particularly surprised by Spain. And the reason being is that the government there has been very aware of the need um, and has also been very vocal about its commitment to innovative medicine. And in fact, the collaboration agreement that has been going since 2016 was reviewed in 2018. This agreement is focused on guaranteeing access to therapeutic innovations and not necessarily just um, therapeutic innovations, but also balancing that with the sustainability of being able to afford it by the Spanish National Health Service. And despite all of that, and despite a lot of uh, political noise, if I can say, um, with Spain and showing record speeds of providing access to CAR T medicines, providing access to Spinraza. Actually, what we're seeing when we look at the big data, we're seeing that the, the availability of, of orphan drugs has gone down by 10%, which is rather disappointing. And I think that speaks to sort of looking at not necessarily who's speaking the loudest, but looking at, at the data. If we look at the length of market access delays, then the average time between uh, market authorization and patient access differs incredibly. I mean, it's, it's on a real extensive scale. If you can imagine Poland is on one end and Germany's on the other. Well, perhaps that's not surprising, um, certainly with the markets that allow access or sales from day one from, from market access authorization. So clearly, um, the likes of Germany, Austria, the UK will be having better data. But again, what this comes down to is not necessarily looking at the, the, the big data, but really digging into the details and looking at the picture. Because if I told um, if, if I told somebody at Vertex that actually, well, the UK is doing really well because they've got availability, the, uh, the rate of availability there and the length of market access delays is, is nearly nothing. That doesn't tell the full picture. And I think, you know, even if I looked at uh, three drugs, if I look at Orkambi, if I look at Spinraza, um, if I look at Kuvan as well, they tell a very, very different story um, in, in the UK. And so much so, I mean, this has been in the news a, a lot recently about Orkambi, um, but the story there has been going on for a, a number of years now um, with the English authorities and, and specifically NHS England, who are in a deadlock with Vertex about providing access to the drug. Really quite disappointingly, and this, this for me sort of again, gives a very different flavour and taste to when we talk about market access delays and, and the UK coming out um, with a shining pin, is that the outcome of not being able to 
agree um, to a price and to agree on reimbursement conditions for Orkambi recently meant that, uh, well, 8,000 uh, packets of Orkambi had to be destroyed um, because they were past their expiry date. And, and if we... I think that that's a terrible thing to happen anyway. It's also a terrible thing to happen in England because it's it's one of the countries with the highest number of cystic fibro fibrosis patients. So it's a, a real shame. One of the things that um, Vertex are talking about is that the NICE processes are outdated. One of the things that NHS England are talking about is that the, the, the Vertex prices um, are outdated in terms of the current environment. And what is quite obvious is that new models are needed. New models are needed not necessarily just in terms of being able to evaluate medicines but also for industry as well to be able to understand well how best do we approach um, various different government bodies to make sure that we do get access. So I think the, uh, the responsibility is not necessarily just on one side, it's a responsibility across both. The, the one thing, again, with the um, rate of availability that I particularly find most disturbing is that the rate of availability for orphan drugs is lower than non-orphan and the delay is longer for orphan drugs um, than non-orphan. So we're talking sort of up to three years, specifically when we're talking about Poland, but um, the, the delay for orphan drugs is much longer. And I think people misunderstand that because often orphan drugs are talked about as a, you know, a safe haven for pricing, for reimbursement, to be able to ensure access. And actually, when you look at this data, it very much shows that the opposite is true. So what does all of this mean? Well, there are certain forces driving for change. One of those is at a political perspective, so at a very high level, a macro-environmental level. Um, we are in the lead-up to the European elections in May. The current president, the presidency under Romania, is advocating strongly to improve access to medicines and improve access to innovative medicines as well. It will be interesting to see how that plays a role in those elections next month. In addition, something that is close to my heart, I think, is that the, the European Transparency Directive. And again, there is a, a time period here of 180 days to, to make member states have a reimbursement decision one way or the other. If we actually have a look at the days themselves and the countries, then we see that that's very different. So let me give France as an example, and I think many, many people would think of France as a country that gives relatively speedy access. If we look at the data for those orphan drugs um, over that period of time, then France, we're talking about 554 days. That's 18 months on average, and that's the average. That, um, so that that is significantly over the Transparency Directive benchmark. If we look as well at Ireland, again, um, that too is well above 740 days, two years. So we, we, when we actually look at the data, we see many, many countries are not managing to meet the um, Transparency Directive benchmark. And, and that sort of gives another force um, driving for change, which I think is also part and parcel of, of the um, industry's responsibility to look and understand, well, how do we better get, what can we do to really um, drive for change? Clearly, new models may be needed. That's great, but that's not going to happen in the short term. So what can you do in the short term to be able to make a difference? And there's, there's three things that I would like to highlight. The first one is really to fully 
understand payers' needs. Engage with them early and really understand it. The second is to make sure that those needs are incorporated in your evidence generation strategy. And so if a payer is very clear and adamant that a surrogate outcome is not going to give you optimal access, then there's no point incorporating a surrogate outcome as part of your primary endpoint. And when we're talking about evidence generation strategy, that's not necessarily just in the clinical development pipeline, but is also looking at post-launch commitments as well, so real-world evidence. And, and a part of that real-world evidence and understanding the outcomes is thinking about, well, what is going to be pragmatic to be able to capture those outcomes in the real-world setting? So if we're looking at um, a clinical trial design and understanding, well, if you're going to incorporate, for example, um, as was done in the the Luxterna, the Spark trial, uh, an obstacle course as part of your primary endpoint, then the likelihood, the pragmatism of incorporating a an obstacle course to be able to determine, well, is this drug working in real life? Clearly, that's not going to happen. So really thinking about the evidence generation, not necessarily just at launch, but post-launch as well. And then the last thing that I would say, the, the third thing is all about keeping all of those priority stakeholders, not everybody, but all of the priority stakeholders, make sure that they are fully informed and engaged because they will be able to support and they will be able to help you. So I think while whilst all of this is not going to make an immediate impact, it will certainly make sure that um, access for orphan drugs to, to patients is, is improved in the future. Now, Jack Rawson gives us the clinical and financial news updates from the spinal muscular atrophy or SMA therapy space. In the past couple of weeks, there has been mixed news in the spinal muscular atrophy or SMA treatment arena. It relates to the Novartis Avexis gene therapy Zolgensma, which is yet to be approved, and Biogen Spinraza, which is already on, on the market as a treatment for SMA. Last week, Avexis, a Novartis company, announced interim data from its Phase 3 STRIVE clinical trial of Zolgensma in SMA type 1, with a second patient death reported. More recently, Biogen's CEO released a statement this week outlining the success of Biogen and Ionis's Spinraza, which, to quote, delivered strong financial results in its first quarter, driven by the solid operational performance of multiple sclerosis, SMA, and its biosimilar franchises. Spinraza sales showed it went up to 518 million, up 42%, including US revenue of 223 million and ex-US sales of $295 million, while analysts expected sales totaling $486.4 million in the first quarter. The recent developments for these two high-cost therapies in poll contention for SMA come at a crucial time. The FDA has accepted a license application for Zolgensma with a target action date for May, while the approval in Japan and the EU is expected later this year. Also notably, Spinraza is approved for all forms of SMA, type 0 through 5. Solgensma, if approved, will only be for patients with type 1, at least initially. There are four types of SMA, with type 1 being the most lethal and typically resulting in death by the age of two years without treatment. Analysts are speculating what seemed to spell good fortunes for Biogen and worrying news for Novartis. The interim data presented last week was from the STRIVE trial with 22 infants. 
This is for the SMA type 1 patients, with one patient dying from respiratory failure. A subsequent investigation found that this was unlikely to be due to the gene therapy. Over the weekend, Novartis had to provide an update which released news of a second patient death in the Zolgensma Strive EU trial. Whether these safety issues have an impact on pediatric neurologist prescription decisions over Spinraza is yet to be seen. However, this is a crucial factor determining future referral. Issues have been seen in the past with other gene therapies. Furthermore, Zolgensma's efficacy compares poorly to Spinraza's. Comparing Spinraza's India Phase 3 trial, Nurture Interim Analysis, and Phase 2 trials with Zolgensma's START and STRIVE trials shows Spinraza has superior CHOP in 10 scores. This is a measure of motor skills in patients with SMA type 1. Despite all this, Ionis' shares were sent tumbling by more than 13% last week, which suggests investors are still viewing this data favorably. However, impedience will be affected by further news of the second death. The recent efficacy data adds to the 15 patients in the original START trial for Zolgensma and will likely increase the chances of future regulatory approval. All these factors will come into price negotiations, which is a topic of great concern for both payers and pharma. Independent drug pricing watchdog ISA, or the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, has said Spinraza would need to cost between 72000 and 130000 for the first year of treatment, and cost 36000 65000 per year after that, for infants not yet showing symptoms of the disease. Zolgensma would be worth 310000 to 900000 for type 1 SMA patients, based on the quality assessment, or 710,000 to 1.5 million using the same calculation. ISO have said Spinraza's list price of 750,000 for the initial year and 375,000 annually thereafter needs to be far lower to be cost effective. Novartis contends that the rare disease community believes that 500,000 per quality or quality adjusted life years is a more appropriate standard for transformative therapies. At that level, Zolgensma would be cost-effective at $5 million. These treatments will be covered by U.S. insurers regardless of the pricing, but the ripple effect of pricing decisions like these threatens the overall affordability and sustainability of the U.S. health system, said ISA Chief Medical Officer Dr. David Rind. The story is far from over, however. We are waiting on Novartis to release the complete data package, and despite the undetermined cause of the second death and purported unrelated causes of the first death, this is a potential dark cloud for Novartis. Novartis's sprint trial will assess how Zolgensma matches up against Spindraza in initiating treatment prior to symptom appearance. This will be another crucial development in the ongoing competition. This trial will have to deal with anti-AAV antibodies and the resistance to gene therapy, however. And that's it for this week. Next week, we will feature a guest speaker, Scott Doffman. Chief Executive Officer of non-profit gene therapy developer Odelia Therapeutics on his personal journey and the future in gene therapy development. For more news and analysis, go to our website www.partnersforaccess.com Subscribe to our podcast on Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to leave a review. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.